Welcome to On The Pulse, where this LSE Green Week we're talking about the environment. And just in the last 17 hours, we've had a report come out from a number of climate scientists saying that this is going to be the hottest year on record since 1850, which is probably not unexpected, but a fairly catastrophic thing to hear. Yes, I think so, Hayden. But I think I just want to bring in the positive side to all of this, if there is any, because I think all the catastrophic news kind of brings you down on a on a very personal, emotional Probably level. Probably fair, yeah. Yeah, so I, today actually, um, in my home country, the Netherlands, school thousands of school kids have gone to the capital, The Hague, to protest um, in favour of climate policies, which have been very problematic in the Netherlands over the past year. The Dutch coalition reached uh, an agreement to raise taxes on, on companies' emissions, but then backtracked and really the coalition almost fell last week over these policies. Surely also influenced in some way by the Gilets Jaunes movement in France, which kind of stirred the fears of Dutch people reacting in a similar vein. And we've seen all these debates about climate policy hitting the poorest the hardest. But what I just want to say, I think it's very interesting and encouraging that it's the young people that are doing this. And we see the same thing, I think, throughout Northwestern Europe. We've seen it in Sweden with the girl who hasn't been going to school for months, I think, to protest climate change. We've seen it in Belgium, where a minister resigned last week (laughs) because she suggested that climate rallies organized by kids were a conspiracy. And she insisted that the Secret Services told her so, which wasn't true. So she had to resign. So I think this is some people in Dutch media have been very quick to say that there is a new consciousness arising among young people. I think this might be too soon to say, but I think it's definitely encouraging. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, in this week, we've found out that apparently from a top government advisor that Brexit is finally a good thing, (laughs) that um, the UK's exiting from the common agricultural policy would actually help the environment, which is um, a curious silver lining to take from all of this chaos in Britain, but I mean, I'm willing to take what I can get. We've been hearing a lot about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's efforts to promote the Green New Deal. Um, We'll talk about it a bit later with Dr. Black uh, from the LSE, Um, but I want to put it on the back burner for now and talk about what other approaches that we see around us. Yeah, when, um, when I was doing some research for this episode, I sort of came across this debate between Professor Lord Sir Stern... Mm-hmm. I believe it, that I don't think that's his title. Sorry. Well, I, I'm not Can British, so. I... <laughs> okay, so you're back, and you search for it on Google. Yeah, I I think I was actually right. Oh, um, you were right. Anyway, Stern of the LSE, big up to LSE academics and the Nobel Prize winner Nordhaus, who is talking about effectively this DICE model that he refers to, which is a model of present discounted value, which sounds a little bit boring and complicated, but I think it's essentially trying to say that we need to consider what we've got now and how much we value the present in terms of how we take our approach to future climate change. So he proposes a carbon tax, but not a necessarily super radical carbon tax, in that it doesn't make our growth and GDP very sluggish or doesn't cut it a lot so that we can enjoy continued growth and environmental protection. 
So if I understand it correctly, his idea is that the levels of wealth and well-being we have now shouldn't be affected directly by our climate policies in a significant way. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously calling for some sort of curbing and some changes, definitely not as radical as what Stern was calling for, and he was talking a lot more about long-reaching, sort of long-lasting, immediate change. And both of these have sort of come at loggerheads, essentially. They both obviously agree that climate change is a real problem, and one of the curious things about Nordhaus is that he's continually written these articles and these op-eds calling out deniers and people who aren't willing to take action, maybe there's sort of ideologues in the Republican Party and stuff like that. But when it comes to change, and I'm not sure if this necessarily comes from sort of my ideological standpoint or a sort of perhaps an ignorance about Nordhaus's work, but it really doesn't seem to be enough change. Uh, there was some estimates saying that his carbon taxes would still allow the temperatures across the world to rise by about three and a half degrees, which is far above the sort of standards that we're looking at from Stern and from the UN, which has ranged, I think, between two and a half and one and a half, mm. the, that, that sort of campaign, the 1.5 to stay alive. And yeah. It seems a little bit conservative to go and then say 3.5 to stay alive. This debate reminds me of uh, a paper that I read a couple of weeks ago for one of my courses, which tried to explain policy procrastination. So it tried to explain why we don't take radical action in the face of catastrophic climate change. I try to explain it from a rational point of view. And I mean, this is relevant not only in, in climate change, but also just in exam period or uh, when, you're, when you're about to hand in your paper and you're procrastinating. Yeah, I mean, we started this podcast about half an hour late because I was procrastinating getting out of bed. So. I mean, honestly, we started this podcast to procrastinate on our academic <laughs> work. Let's be honest about this. So the, what, what this paper describes, it's a paper by Andreu. It describes why it can be seen as rational to procrastinate. And it's this idea of small, minor actions cannot in themselves create catastrophic results. Perfect analogy is smoking. Every time you have a choice between not smoking and smoking, you know that one cigarette will not give you lung cancer. So every time that you are in that situation to make that choice, it is actually rational for you, for you to smoke because it gives you so much pleasure. And so every sing- if you see decisions as isolated and you don't really take a historical long-term approach to your personal decisions. It is rational to do harmful things if if their harms are very small in the short run, even though they're very large in the long run. And I think that's exactly what's happening in policy procrastination too, because really it doesn't make a difference if we introduce CO2 carbon emissions tax right now. We could wait another year and reap the benefits of our economic production, and that one year will make no difference right now. But if you add all those one years together, it does. And so I think this is this perfectly explains why I start writing papers the night before the deadline. It explains why you keep smoking, but it also might explain a little bit of this inertia, this inaction when it comes to climate change. Yeah, I, I mean, I was curious about the, you bringing up um, the sort of rationality of these actors, and I thought perhaps it's more acute in democratic countries when we're talking about this, because it's very politically painful to start enacting these policy changes immediately and it's it's something that I know that we've touched on before um, last episode with Professor Graeber about the gilets jaunes and the policy decisions that Macron was trying to make are, are clearly very very politically difficult for him to take and with these sort of people taking to the streets in opposition to what might be seen as sort of the opposite of policy procrastination I'm curious what what do you think people who want to see this change enacted should really go about and do themselves. Well, one thing that reminds 
that I'm reminded of in this discussion is uh, we talked about this briefly with Professor White in our first episode on the future, which is this idea that democratic politics has terms of four or five years. And so there is an incentive for policymakers and politicians to take a rather short term view. Um, and I mean, in that sense, it's really hard to to come up with what are the direct responsibilities or obligations of citizens and democracies if in the end these obligations are translated into four-year terms and four-year policies or policies that are at least made up by governments that are only there for four to eight, maybe ten years if they're re-elected, um, but that influence the next couple of centuries. There's there's like a fundamental disconnect between those time scales, which doesn't mean, I think, that we shouldn't protest um, for long-term change, but it does complicate it very much. And, and, and I mean, I one thing that I like about the current protests in my country is that these young people are saying, listen, we've had enough of the individualization of responsibility for climate change. And I don't know if you saw it this week, but in front of LSE's library, they put out all the, sh- all the thrash of one day in front of the library. So if you would walk into the library, you would see the thrash that we produce all together in one day at LSE. And then they had a banner saying, what can you do to reduce the thrash? Really, honestly, when I walk past that, I get annoyed because the answer is I can't really do much. Because when I go to co-op to buy a lunch, it's wrapped in plastic. And I wish it wasn't wrapped in plastic. But there's really not that much I can do about that, um, except for going into the streets and asking for actually substantial structural change. Yeah, I, I like this idea. I think that the the sort of... um. The rubbish outside was perhaps a nice touch to illustrate just the sheer quantities that are produced, but it seems to be something in this country that it's very um, sort of the the burden is privatised in a lot mm. of ways to individuals so that it's sort of the government talking now about you know, plastic straws a lot and selling telling companies to not do that or telling people to not buy these things or to buy environmentally friendly products and light bulbs and things and these things obviously on a sort of micro level make quite a lot of difference to individual aspects of the environment but in aggregate they're not major change and I'm curious about especially with the conservative government in the UK at the moment this sort of tension that seems to appear between radical um, effects to stop climate change and a conservative ideology because in a lot of ways um, there are very conservative groups like the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England and stuff mm-hmm. who vehemently protest against people building on the green belt or people building houses sort of in outer London and things like that mm-hmm. because they want to protect our so-called green and pleasant land. But in contrast, there seems to be precious little done about conservation and it, it might just be a sort of linguistic trick, but it, it does appear that the idea of preserving one's environment and one's country... Um, in conservation appears sort of as quite a conservative ideology Mm. in a sense. And I'm curious why people from these groups haven't really picked it up as an issue. Yeah, that's interesting. We've seen conservative rhetoric in the literal sense of the word in the Netherlands over the past year becoming stronger, uh, especially from Christian democratic political parties. And I mean, it's very central to Christian thought, this idea that that we are responsible in a way for the earth. But w- what I've been seeing in Dutch political discourse, and this might be true for the situation here that I don't know too much about, is that 
conservation is seen as a primarily cultural thing. So if you want to conserve uh, cultural values or historical heritage, you'll go out of your way to do that. And if that involves protecting a certain natural habitat in which those cultural elements were shaped, so if that involves protecting farmers' land because you think that's where a certain farmer's culture was born, you'll do that. But it's not really about the land itself. It's ultimately about what happened there culturally. That's how I see conservation is being used, at least in my country. This sort of approach is really interesting because we've seen the shortcomings of rationality in tackling climate change. But what still seems to stand up to me is this visceral, emotional approach, which seems to be a lot more effective Mm. in some ways. Yeah, I think this is a point that maybe we don't talk about enough or think about enough. And I was I was triggered by something I read a couple of years ago um, by Zadie Smith in an essay in her... She has this essay book, it's called Feel Free, and there's this one essay about the weather and how the weather is such a natural part of how we feel, too. And at one point she says... I think she starts this way, actually. She says, there's a scientific and ideological language for what is happening to the weather, which we've just been discussing. But there are hardly any intimate words. Even though, you know, if you think about your personal experiences, your holidays, um, your trips to the beach with people you love, the weather will almost always come into play as to how you felt there. And if the weather is so emotionally relevant obviously climate change is so too but we hardly discuss that yeah this is a point that crops up in dr black's interview which i found really interesting is the sort of emotional language behind the green new deal Mm. and that although it's forwards looking in terms of policies it's quite backwards looking in terms of rhetoric and that it does evoke a sort of golden age of american dominance and american economic worth Mm -hmm. and it thought it was really curious how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other policymakers seem to be mobilizing this sort of emotional rhetoric already. So like you mentioned, we talked to uh, Dr. Megan Black. She's an assistant professor at the International History Department here at the LSE about the Green New Deal and about America's historical role in climate policy. The United States has often been at the forefront of conservation and environmentalism and Yet these histories are always more complicated than a standard narrative that we get of sort of progressive reform that um, counters problematic um, processes of industrialization in the case of conservation or, or new and changing ideas about ecological damage, which became a, a point of conversation for environmental uh, groups and um, activists, at least since the 1960s with Rachel Carson, Silent Spring being published and helping to popularize and mainstream an interest in that set of ideas. Um, And there is a growing trend for for transnational concern within the environmental movement. So groups like Save the Whales or Greenpeace consciously cross borders and, and try to appeal to bodies like the United Nations because there's an acknowledgement that environmental crises themselves cross borders as well. Um, So that's a a bit of a sense of where environmentalism comes from, where we're at in the the sort of year 2019 is um, 
certainly building on that set of interests and concerns, but we've also had um, a lot of climate change denial and particularly the current administration, whereas much of the work of the environmental movement in the 90s and after had been to really establish both among scientific communities and electorates around the world that climate change was real, it is affecting um, many processes in the planet. And how would you say that the Trump administration has changed this? Donald Trump campaigned on a a very clearly pro-energy development platform and made that intention very clear with his first appointments coming into the White House. So Rex Tillerson as um, the Secretary of State, um, Rick Perry in the Department of Energy, Brian Zinka in the Interior Department, and um, and climate denialists in the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, these major organs of um, U.S. power, of the executive branch organizations that help to recommend and enact policies um, for the American people, is one that that means that there was a real alignment of, of belief in the importance of deregulating the um, American economy in different ways. So the Trump administration, as the New York Times has recently reported, has put forward at least 78 um, recommendations and in some cases actual um, policies to dismantle key parts of um, the regulatory functions of, say, the EPA or um, Department of the Interior. So some of these might deal with questions of emissions, like how much mercury can accompany legally emit into the air before being sort of culpable for their actions by virtue of creating a kind of public health crisis, or um, what sorts of safety measures need to be put into place in, in tailings ponds, where are people allowed to drill for, um, for minerals, for oil, whether that's in coastal regions off of um, the United States, or if that is in public lands and places that were pretty well publicized in this election, or in the wake of the election, like Bears Ears National Monument or, or other kinds of um, lands that had been set aside either in the Obama era or before as in need of protection. In a nutshell, in the Trump administration, there has been even less of an attempt than in previous administrations to, um, to conceal the fact that the motives driving this are um, energy development and profits. It is something that is easily spun as job creation, which is why it's popular with the American electorate and um, and people who, for example, living in West Virginia are struggling to find employment in a place that used to be a coal belt and a, a key part of American industry and a source of reliable income for, for them. But the fact is that we now know something that's really hard to kind of reconcile, which is that these same kinds of activities, the extraction of minerals and and oil from subterranean sources is environmentally degrading. And I guess in response to these sort of policies, we've seen a rising popularity of what's called the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. And I know that this has been described by a number of publications as radical, um, Mm -hmm. but it seems to have been a relatively sort of recurring theme in democratic thought for a while, mm-hmm. sort of even appearing in a form in Obama's 2008 platform mm-hmm. and the sort of fiscal stimulus package. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering whether you think that the Green New Deal marks a truly radical break from these sort of policies or if it's mm-hmm. sort of merely window dressing. 
I'm going to toe the line with a lot of historians and say that it represents both change and certain continuities. So it is both um, a break and it builds from many well-established trends, like you say. And specifically, it it presents itself both as radical and new, but it's also consciously referring to history, right? The New Deal at the center of its labeling is conscious and it's meant to kind of tap into this set of um, sort of bold plans that were put forward in the wake of the Great Depression in the 1930s in the United States to, um, to try to get people back to work, to try to use government um, mechanisms to intervene in the economy to, to write a course that um, seemed to have been, by virtue of its sort of unregulated and, and free-flowing financialization of the roaring 1920s to have um, come back to injure the American public and the global public in a, in a larger sense. Now, one thing that is important to note about the New Deal is that by virtue of getting people back to work and, and trying to um, grow the American economy, it was predicated on a model of limitless growth, right? So in order to get the United States out of the recession, out of the depression, the idea was to stimulate mass production. And that was something that was aided by wartime mobilization. But what is unavoidable about the historic New Deal was that um, the building of infrastructures and highways and, um, and the production of goods done through a, a consortium of both government-sponsored um, kind of projects like the Works Project uh, Progress Administration, the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, some of those alphabet programs that you learn about that FDR and, um, and his advisors implemented to, to get people um, employed and, and to get them a paycheck so that they could then go consume the goods that were being produced on the industry side of things. Um, that really revolves around hydrocarbons and fossil fuels, doesn't it? And other kinds of raw materials that have been extracted and taken from the earth and often done in ways that, that can adversely affect other things we value, like air, quality, water, and so on. So one of the key stories of the American post-war economic ascendance that is attributed both to the New Deal and wartime mobilization is the automobile. And it would be a very different story about the New Deal if that weren't a part of, of it. So the question then becomes for us when we think about the radical break that the Green New Deal might represent is the extent to which they can offer an alternative to the growth model, or if not the, the growth model per se, an alternative set of um, products to invest in and ways to direct human energy toward the earth that, um, that keep people active, keep people employed, but also um, can push towards um, decarbonization, which is a key platform, and, um, and thinking about alternative sources of energy. This is exciting, and it also is, as you point out, not entirely new either. The Green Party before, which is you know, both perhaps intentionally and unintentionally referred to in, in, in this labeling, is, is one that had linked consumer safety and environmental issues. You know, Ralph Nader and um, Wynonna LaDuke, both activists thinking at that intersection, and, um, and at one point a fairly viable nominee in the national election for um, president and vice president of the United States. So certainly the, the ability to sort of transform the New Deal 
model into something that could work for a more, a more sustainable future, um, it seems to be there. And it seems that there are lots of resources and visions that have been put forward since, again, that 1960s moment of environmental interest um, that both happened in the United States and was much bigger than the United States. Um, so I, I feel both a lot of optimism about it and a, and a curiosity as to the, the logistics, of course. So much um, is in the details and who will end up being on these committees, whether, you know, we know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a, a key figure who um, seems to have a, a lot of ideas and, and energy to put toward this platform, but, but who else? And if we do expect America to take a step back from this sort of automobile, hydrocarbons-based growth mm-hmm. model, do you expect that to be an unambiguously good thing? Decarbonizing is not easy. I think it will be a painful process for a lot of people. I think um, the the positive potential in investing in alternative sources of energy is clear and there, and we have stories about how we had missed an opportunity to really invest and double down in things like solar energy by virtue of competing lobbies that that refuse to retrench. You know, and um, and if that narrative is to believe be believed and. and think it should be, then we can see that alternate paths that were not taken along the way suggest that there, there are ways to make economic productivity sync up with a more environmentally sustaining form of um, energy production. There are a lot of other steps that we can take too besides just looking at the sort of combustion or the, the process of harnessing energy to think about the role of plastics in our consumption and it's something that we have a much better set of optics for now and and it's a um, I think a distressing thing for many people to see the images of the oceans overfilled with, um, with plastic that is of course disrupting environments and, and damaging mammals and other um, marine species that we have come to value as, as parts, as cohabitants on this planet. Um, so the environmental movement, I think, is smartly seizing upon the opportunity produced by this tragedy and, and trying to get um, the word out there and trying to mainstream things like go without straws and why does your shampoo need to come from a bottle? It could be in a bar. You know, this is, of course, a reason why the fossil fuel industry pushes against that because it means that a, a sort of market that they had cornered, which was the best way to containerize and and, um, and purvey goods, is is no longer just obviously their market. It's something that is broadening out and being diversified. And it doesn't mean that plastics can or necessarily ever will go away entirely. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why did they become so ubiquitous in the first place? Obviously. There's a flexibility and a lightness and an actual you know, chemical properties of that that have lent themselves particularly to the needs of a society that values like sterilization in hospitals or whatever it might be. Um, but we can think about the way that um, this, this doesn't have to be ubiquitous. And in that, there presumably are other economic opportunities but I also don't know. I'm a historian, so we are much better at looking at, at patterns that you know have um, 
have kept up with us until this very moment, but it is also very clear that um, many, many cycles seem to repeat themselves and debates return. And um, there were moments earlier in U.S. history where the nature of recycling was being debated and people were asking whether it should fall upon consumers who drink Coca-Cola bottles to deal with paying for the infrastructure to clean up and, and properly tend to the waste of um, those goods, or whether the companies that mass produced and profited off of those should be the ones to incur those, um, those fees. So there was a decision in that moment that it was the consumer's job. But one set of debates I think we're facing right now with a lot of political candidates, including Bernie Sanders, is um, whether we can start asking a set of questions about culpability and responsibility and who's going to help to fund the, the creation of this new infrastructure. Um, and of course, much of the answer that is offered is um, the wealthy, right? That the progressive taxation will um, be put to use in this kind of building clean infrastructure capacity. And it does seem that you know there have been precedents where this kind of redistributed progressive taxation has been able to, to um, help crawl out of different kinds of economic turmoil. The question is, can it, can it be done in a way that can also be ecologically sound? And by virtue of being ecologically sound, being great for humanity and for, for non-human nature as well. That's everything for this week. Thanks for listening. This is On The Pulse and I've been Hayden. I've been Fleur and if you're interested in more of Dr. Black's work, check out her course HY245 or her book that was published last year called The Global Interior. And you can check out that book and even more on our description, on our SoundCloud, MixCloud and Spotify. And check us out on our new Twitter, which is at LSE Pulse. Bye.